I gave some thought this week to uh, asking Andrew to send out a, an email, as we do from time to time, with big letters that said, this week's sermon is about sex, just to see if I could uh, get a little more uh, attendance. And it looks like I didn't even have to send out the email. It must the, somehow the word must have got out that we were working our way through Matthew and we're getting to that passage. I, I heard years ago of an advertisement in a newspaper with the word sex in big letters in the newspaper ad, and then right underneath it it said, now that we have your attention, we'd like to sell you some shoes. <laughs> God has put within mankind an incredible thing called sexuality. And it's so powerful that the famous ungodly psychiatrist Sigmund Freud believed that all of the challenges in life stem from our sexuality, either from good or for bad. Our modern society exploits this strong desire constantly in advertising. They use people who are beautiful and desirable to entice us to buy their products. Entertainment revolves around sexually charged themes many times and, and behaviors that appeal to, our, to this inward drive that was given by God. Sexuality is a mysterious part of humanity that is both physical and emotional or relational. Many people would have us to believe that it's only physical, but even those who treat sexuality lightly call it cheating when their lover does not stay true to them. The desire for sexual expression is so strong that many resort to abusive behaviors to get gratification. Our sheriff's department, where I serve as a chaplain, the detectives tell me that 70% of the crimes they investigate are sexual crimes. 70%, and that's about a half a dozen people working on crimes all the time. Sexuality was created by God to be the means of propagating humanity, creating a bond between husband and wife, and giving joy in marriage, but it's been twisted and misused until it's hardly recognizable at times. Even Christians are enticed by the sexual appeals of our society, but Jesus has something better for us. And he's going to tell us about it in Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her, with, to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. In this passage, Jesus is using a series of topics to expound on a theme. And the theme is this. Christianity, relationship with God, has got to go as deep as your heart and your inmost being. It's not good enough to have externals that look righteous. We've got to be righteous internally and externally. And so this is one of those topics that he uses as an example. And he starts this topic by affirming faithfulness in marriage. He affirms faithfulness in marriage. Why does God say that adultery is wrong? I, I know that's a you know, anybody who's been a Christian for a while, you have to go, well, duh. 
And yet it's good for us to look a little deeper and say, why does God say it's wrong? Well, he says it's wrong, first of all, because adultery doesn't fit in God's definition of marriage. Now, the world today is coming up with new definitions of marriage. We just approved one in our state. And there are more definitions uh, circulated and more on the way. And yet, what is God's definition? Well, I think the best uh, summary of God's definition is given in Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If there's any doubt about what God says, we can start with this definition and say God is talking about male and female. And so yes, when we get to Hebrews 13.4 for my Sunday school class, God is not going to say in Hebrews 13.4 a male and a female, but he says it here and it comes out of the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And do you know where that's a quote from? from Genesis chapter 2, and Adam and Eve didn't even have a mother and father to leave. But Moses, by God's inspiration, looked back to that first marriage and said, this is what is normal. A man and woman leave their home and come, and the old King James word is cleave to one another, which sounds like cut in half, but it means to cling That was God's original intent. They shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's not hard to understand when he says the two become one flesh, that in the sexual act there is a physical kind of oneness, but that is not all that God intends. He intends oneness to be physical and relational, spiritual, emotional. Marriage is one man and one woman becoming one by an act of God. God made Adam and Eve married. Uh, I confess to you that I can't explain it other than to say that when, when two people make the promises of marriage and come together, that God sees them now not as two, but as one. One plus one equals one. That is God's design. That is his intention. That is his plan. I know in the Old Testament there were people with multiple wives. God never approved of that. In fact, he specifically told the king, don't multiply wives, it'll be a problem. And it was. It's all the men snickering right there. I tell you what right now. (laughs) all the men with any sense about him the prophet malachi the prophet malachi picks up this theme when he now he talks he's going to be talking about divorce which we will be talking about next week because jesus comes to that next in the text but i think there's an important truth about divorce that also applies to adultery The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. 
yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. There is a, a strong sense in which in the majority of the time of the Old Testament, uh, both in secular and in, and in uh, God's society, only the men could pursue a divorce. The women didn't have rights per se. They didn't have ownership of things and so on. And so much of this is addressed to men, but, but we understand that, that it cuts both ways in today's world. But he's saying, listen, listen, you men, you have dealt treacherously. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. There it is, that agreement before God, that promise before God. But did he not make them one? Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of says that he, the Lord God of Israel says he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. It covers one's garment with violence. God says that when, and, and trust me, there's not going to be a, a magic trick here. Don't get too excited. But God says that when, when two people come together, they become one. No longer two, but one. But he says when you get divorced, you are tearing something in two. In our American society, we, we've kind of come to view marriage as as a place where two people come together and it's kind of a 50-50 thing and we're kind of in a static union there, but we're really not, they don't see us as one. And so when divorce comes, they say, well, two people went their own way. God says, no, when you divorce, you're tearing something up. He says, it covers your clothes with violence. And that's why God hates it. God made two people one. Now, what happens in adultery? That's what happens in adultery. The garment is not rent all the way through, but there is a tearing, and there's a violence to it. Adultery doesn't fit God's picture of marriage. He wants us to be one, and anything that interrupts that is relationally violent. Adultery doesn't fit Adultery doesn't fit in God's definition of marriage, and it also doesn't fit in God's marriage picture. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, please. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He, he's talking about husbands and wives and how they ought to relate. And, and in the context of Ephesians, he's, he's defining godly behavior. But at the same time, he's saying, do you understand, husband and wife, that you are giving a picture of Christ and the church? 
God uses marriage as an illustration of the relationship between Christ and all of those who have become believers. God says that when we believe in Christ, the word that's a, that is translated church literally means to be called out. We become the ones who are called out. What are we called out of? We're called out of the kingdom of Satan, out of the world, into the body of Christ. So the word body of Christ and the word church are synonyms. But he says that in that body of Christ, we are all together. Christ is the head. And one of the great metaphors that's used is he is the husband, we are the wife. And the husband and wife relationship on earth is supposed to mirror the one that is here with Christ. So what does that say to husbands and wives today? It says that the way I conduct myself as a husband is supposed to mirror how Christ cares for the church. It says that the wife, the way my wife relates to me is supposed to demonstrate how the church relates to Christ. And can you see then how adultery does not fit in that picture at all? Would Christ ever be unfaithful to us? Would a godly Christian ever be unfaithful to Christ and go worship some idol or give him up for some other form of, of religion? No, of course not. What does this say to singles today? You know what it says? You need to prepare for a marriage of purity by a life of purity now. As now, so then. Why do you think you will be true to your spouse in marriage when you're not true now? You've got to say no, and the urge is strong, especially when you're young, and, and it's hard to say no and to, to be righteous, but it will bear fruit in marriage it says to singles, they should not date someone who is sexually active and defends his or her behavior with sinful thoughts. That person will break your heart before marriage and in marriage. Adultery doesn't fit God's marriage picture. And adultery doesn't demonstrate God's love in marriage. That, it, really, it really goes without saying, but we've got to think about it, Christian. As Jesus was preparing to be crucified and leave his disciples, he said these words in the upper room, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is the way that people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now that love is, it was defined later by one of the men sitting listening to Jesus talk, the apostle John, and he said this, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. How can someone who calls themselves a disciple or a follower of Christ commit such a selfish act as adultery? We need to remember those Remember that God wants us to act in love, and as we go through our day and we're tempted toward a thought or a deed, we have to say, no, I cannot so live and, and, and give a clouded picture of the love of Christ. How sinfully twisted is the heart that says, well, I've fallen in love with someone new. That's not godly love. 
How callous must a believer be to say, well, it's just a physical thing. Turn back with me to Matthew 5. Because Jesus, as you know, in this passage, goes way beyond physical purity and physical fidelity in marriage and goes on to how we think. He goes deep in our life. Verse 27 of Matthew 5, You've heard it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus commands faithfulness of thought, not just faithfulness in marriage, but faithfulness in our thought life. Now, it's not an accident that Jesus affirmed God's standard on adultery, then gave this instruction. What is it that Jesus is condemning? Well, if we, look, if we break this down just a little bit, it helps us to understand the original language because he says, the, the word look is just the normal word for look, but here's the key. It's written in a verb tense that indicates ongoing action. Ongoing action. In other words, it might better be translated, keeps on looking, or is looking a lot, or is staring, or has his vision focused on. And then if we go on and, and, and expand the translation to put it this way, the person who looks at a woman for the purpose of lusting, for the purpose of, a, of the strong desires that are within. The word lust is used in both the positive and the negative in the New Testament. It means a strong desire. So in and of itself, the word lust is not wrong, but here, that strong desire is clearly connected to sexual activity. And so he says, the person who looks at a woman with the desire for sexual activity, and that is the reason that he is looking in an ongoing sense, he has already committed adultery in his heart. Now, uh, you know, I, I, I'm reminded, as I thought this week, I'm reminded of an episode from Teaching Teenagers. And I was talking about some of these kinds of things in regard to dancing at high school dances. And uh, I had a whole bunch of kids in our living room and we're talking about it, and I said, you know, um, the majority of what goes on at a high school dance and, and the whole music and all of that is, the whole thing is kind of a sexually charged arena. You have to be, you know, you really need to think twice about getting involved in that and, you know, you're touching a girl or a guy and you're dancing around and so on. And this one kid who everybody knew was not a spiritual giant says, what if you can dance without being sexually aroused and thinking sexual thoughts? And you know what the rest of the kids did? They went, because <laughs> they knew for sure he was not going to avoid the sexual thoughts. And they knew that in general that was not going to happen. So look, I understand you, some people want to split hair and say, well, I don't think bad thoughts when I'm doing those bad things. Okay, we'll snicker at you if you want to raise your hand and say that. But we all know how the norm goes for us. And that's what we're talking about today. Jesus is condemning the look that generates sexual thoughts. Now, we ought to say if sex was created by God, then what makes looking with desire sinful? Again, I go to my key verse on this. It's Hebrews 13. Marriage is honorable. 
And the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. You want to know what fornication and adultery is? It's anything but one man and one woman in marriage. And so, here's the application. If you're fantasizing about the woman you're married to, the Lord bless you. And if you're thinking about your husband while you're at work, and you're daydreaming about him, enjoy yourself. But if you're married and you're thinking about somebody else, it's a sin. And if you're not married, then no sexual thought is acceptable. Oh, that's a tough standard. That is. But it isn't mine. It isn't mine. It's Jesus' standard. That means that sexually explicit pictures and TV and magazines and video and books and all that stuff is not acceptable. We might typically think of this as a male problem, and certainly when it comes to physical vision, it may be mostly a male problem, but I'm aware of a certain genre of book that is written for women that contains a lot of sexually suggestive stuff in the in the in the milieu of relationship. I don't know exactly how those are received by women, but it needs to be thought about that perhaps that may do the same thing as men and vision. Does that mean that anytime you see a beautiful woman or a desirable man, you have sinned? No. Here's an example from the Old Testament. And it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a beautiful woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Do you, know the, do you notice the repetition? Uh, he saw a woman bathing, or excuse me, beautiful. He saw this beautiful woman. David's house was a tall house. He looked down on the commoner's house, and he saw this woman taking a bath. And that was a normal thing to do, to go to the roof of your house, because the majority of houses would have been all the same height, and nobody can see you on the roof, and so she was not being a wicked woman. She was doing what women did, and David came out and saw her. And you all know the rest of the story, how David said, I can't look at that, and he walked away and went back inside and lived happily ever after. (laughs) Right? If he had, he would not have sinned. But of course... David sent and inquired about the woman. He did exactly what Jesus says not to do. He looked at her and he kept looking. Is this not Bathsheba the daughter and so on? He sent and took her and came and lay with him. David's first look was accidental, but David's focused vision was sinful. David's first look was accidental, but David's focused vision was sinful. And that's what we've got to remember. Things are going to come to us, especially in our society. Listen to me till I'm all the way done. There's a sense in which I understand the desire of the Muslim world to not have anything sexually attractive in public. I understand that. And yet I know that there's also sexual sin there still. And so the answer is not just to control it on the outside, but to control it on the inside. We are going to see things around us here and there, and we have to say, how does God want me to live? Why does Jesus condemn sexual looking and thinking? Well, very simply, because he wants us to be completely holy. 
See, the Pharisees were happy to be holy on the outside. Jesus is saying, no, it's got to go all the way through your being. 1 Peter 1 really lays it out for us. As he who called you, that's talking about God. God has called us to salvation. As he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. As if as if God's saying, don't think any sexual thoughts isn't bad enough. Now he says, you be just like me. Man, could have gone all day and not read that. Be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. I think it's not an accident that God say, be holy, in the context of saying, do you realize how precious your salvation is? Do you realize how expensive it was for Christ to give up the glories of heaven and live in a human body and die uh, under the terrible conditions he died and have all of the personal insult, do you realize how expensive that is? And it's that sacrifice that bought your salvation and made it possible for you to be holy. God wants us to be completely holy. Why is that? I think it's because of this. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You know why God wants us to be holy? Because he knows that that's when we have the closest fellowship. And so if we want to walk with God day by day, minute by minute, if we want that, then we have to say no, not only to sexual sin, but all kinds of sin. But the benefit is so wonderful. We can walk with God. He can be with us. He can help us. Why does God, why does Jesus condemn sexual looking and thinking? Secondly, because it leads to sin. Flat out, it leads to sin. Look at James chapter 1. If you want to know how sin happens, here it is. You can break it down into a, a formula and it'll be helpful to you. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he, he tempt anyone himself. The next time you are tempted to think a wrong thought in the area of sexuality, the starting point is to say, this did not come from God. God is not doing this to me. But each one is tempted. Here's how you are tempted. When he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Some stimulus comes in from the outside. We see something, we hear something, we experience something. There it is. Now what happens? He said, there are desires within you that are pulling you. They are enticing you. Those are human desires. When it comes to sexuality, that is not a sinful desire at its root. God created it. God wants us to express it in marriage. And so the, the root desire is not wrong. He is drawn by his own desire and he's enticed toward the tempting thing. When it comes to sexuality, the, one of the chief temptations is the short path to a good thing. If you're single, 
God does want you to have the expression of sexuality, but he wants it in marriage. And the temptation is out there to get that fulfillment without going on the long path that leads to a godly marriage. If you're married, there are challenges in marriage, there are roadblocks, there are, there are relational issues that have to do with sexuality, and so there's a temptation to say, here's a quick path. Here's a quick path to fulfillment. Here's my coworker. Here's this pornography. Here's this, here's that. Here's a quick path to fulfillment. And our desire pulls us toward this temptation. And then when desire has conceived, I think right in here, this idea of conception is where Jesus' words come in. The person who looks and looks and looks allows the conception of sin. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings death. Our human desires draw us towards sin. And, of course, they're encouraged by the explicit nature of our society. Beyonce dancing at the Super Bowl halftime show in less than some people wear to bed. I got an email from somebody where they had colored in pants, and the, the thing said, put some pants on, Beyonce. And when we looked at that, when that comes on the screen, there is internally a draw toward that. And the root of that draw is not wicked to begin with. We see the handsome model with no shirt on in the Macy's ad or on the cover of a romance novel. There's something within us that pulls in that direction. Many years ago, a man that I highly respected was telling me about a book being written by another well-known Christian saying that sexual fantasy is normal and good and that it actually keeps you from sexual sin. And he's telling me this, and I'm thinking, and I, I was pretty young at the time. I mean, I was, you know, in the ministry, but I was pretty young, and I'm kind of, inside I'm going, what in the world is he talking about? I, I, wasn't, I wasn't mature enough to stand up and beat him over the head. I should have, because later on I found out at the very time he's telling me about this, he's living in adultery. He's having an affair with a woman and he's a pastor of a church trying to convince me that somehow sexual fantasy pre prevents sexual sin. All sin starts in the heart or the mind. All sin. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, and the list is longer. I just shortened it up. You can try to cut it any way you want, but wrong thoughts leads to wrong behavior. And so how do you say no to sinful behavior? What does Jesus say is the cure for sinful thinking? The radical amputation of sin or temptation. The radical amputation. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, it should be obvious that Jesus is not presenting a physical solution to a spiritual problem because that's the whole point of the message. 
One commentator noted that if you plucked out your right eye, you would simply be a left-eyed luster. Okay. There was a famous church father around uh, 3400 AD who had himself castrated to follow Jesus' words and avoid temptation. But it doesn't change. I, I, I had a, a friend one time who was telling me he talked to a, a, a substantially older man, man who was well, well into retirement, and they were talking about some of this and and this, my young friend said to him, well, I, I guess you don't have any more temptation. And he said, I'm still breathing, aren't I? <laughs> John MacArthur put it this way, the solution to sexual impurity cannot be external because the cause is not external. The cause is internal. Jesus commands us to say no to sins of thought as well as to the deeds of thought. And I think the vital summary is right here. And if you've never memorized this verse, you need to. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no, in other words, don't create an opportunity to sin. You want me to make it really simple? Join in if you know this. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. What does that mean for us adults? It means like Job said in Job 31.1, we need to make a covenant with our eyes. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes and I have not looked lustfully at a woman. When a beautiful woman walks by, we need to turn our gaze, close our eyes, do whatever we have to do to stop looking. When we see someone desirable, we should pray for them and for ourselves instead of thinking those thoughts about them. We should purposefully pick up a magazine in the doctor's office while we're waiting for our appointment with nothing enticing on the cover except something for our intellect like the National Geographic or whatever. We should turn the channel when Beyonce comes on. We should not click on the curious computer link. Man. Hey, want to meet women? Want to meet women? Want to meet women? I mean, I, I got Outlook with a filter. I got... I got uh, what is it, Norton with a filter? And this stuff is still coming through. It comes through and it says, we've marked, Norton says, we've marked this as spam. And, and, and all they're showing you is the headline. It says, hey, would, would, do you want to have relations with a married woman? Don't click that link. There is no good reason to click that link. We all know there's two good reasons not to click that link. Number one, you don't need that sexual activity. Number two, your computer will be destroyed. Don't do it. Don't do it. Say no. And now I'm going to say something really radical. As 1 Corinthians 7 says, you should get married instead of burning with desire. We need to think real hard about our advice to young people about marriage. Now, parents, you can crucify me later. 
I know, there, I know there are times in every person's life when they're too young, but I also know that by telling people to wait and wait and wait and get everything squared away in your life and all your finances and all that stuff, that we're putting them in a place of temptation. God even says it to widows in the church. And believe me, I'm not criticizing anybody here today, and I'm not worried about anybody here today. Please understand me. But God says the younger widows should get married so they're not tempted. I know that's really politically uncorrect to talk that way, and yet that's what God says. God has made provision for the expression of our sexuality. And he says there are some people, 1 Corinthians 7, that he has given the gift of celibacy to. I had a friend in Bible college. He, he was highly desirable and dated a number of girls and was righteous in that, but he came to a point where he said, I believe God has given me the gift of celibacy and I'm just going to serve him and so on. And six months later, he was engaged. <laughs> hey. As Proverbs 5.19 says, we should cultivate, cultivate a desire toward our own husband or wife. He says, be enraptured with her love. And as Philippians 4.8 says, we must choose to meditate on right thoughts. Memorize the scripture. Could I just give you one very, very simple thing that will keep you from all kinds of temptation? All kinds of temptation. When the temptation comes, make it your habit. Your habit, first of all, your go-to to pray. Talk to God. Say, God, I am being tempted. If it'll help you, think of going to God and saying, God, would it be okay if I do this thing right now? Because you know what the answer is going to be. But talk to God. Give your heart out to God. Pray for the situation. Pray for the people. Pray for yourself. Focus your mind on God through his word and through prayer. And in all of this, let me remind you that the normal Christian life is a life of effort. For this very reason. What reason? In verses 3 and 4, he's just told them, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness so that we can escape the corruption that is in the world through lust and have the nature of Christ. For that reason, giving all diligence... Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance. Did God ever say it was going to be easy to live for him? I think there are some churches out there that are trying to tell you that, but that's not what Christ said, that's not what God said. Christ said you need to take up your cross and follow him. He said Put, get into the yoke with me, get into the harness with me, now he did say, my burden is easy and, and light. It'll be a blessing to be in that yoke. But there is a yoke, there is a burden, there is a challenge. We have to control ourselves, and in Christ we can. And then we have to persevere. Somebody has described the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. I think that's what perseverance is, persevering in doing right. That's the picture on the front of your bulletin. You, you might be amused to follow the communication between myself and Catherine when I give her a sermon title, and she says, what kind of picture do you want? And so this week I said, I want something deep. 
<laughs> and so we go back and forth and think about it. This is someone considering whether or not to jump into the deep water. Years ago, there was a phrase about sexuality that, was, that talked about intercourse, and this was the phrase, going all the way. Obviously, there's a reference there to, to some physical interaction between a man and a woman, which is not having intercourse. It's not going all the way. It's going part of the way. And the whole idea of going all the way. I want to challenge you today to go all the way with Christ to jump into the deep water. What Christ has suggested here is deep, and it's challenging, and it's scary to think, you know, am, am, am I going to say no to all of this stuff that has been in my comfort zone and just jump into righteousness, saying no to sin and yes to Christ? He wants us to give him our body and soul our love and our sex and to walk with him in righteousness the water looks cold but it will warm your soul beyond what you can measure the water of righteousness don't just dip your toe in fall into God's righteousness all the way and let him carry you along to his place of blessing Heavenly Father help us this is a strong temptation for us because you put it in us you put the desire, and you've given us a way to, to express it, and yet there's so much corruption of this in the world, and we're tempted, we're drawn. <sighs> Help us to go deep with you. Help us to let go of the shore, jump into the water of your righteousness, and just, just swim with you all the way. Father, as we do that, as we do that, bless us. Meet the needs of our heart. Father, I pray for those who are single here today, especially those who are at a point of longing for companionship. I pray that you would provide that in a godly way, not just for their sexuality, but for all the needs of their heart. I pray that our church would be a place that holds up righteousness as a standard, not so we can brag about it, but so we can live lives of peace and joy from you. Help us, Father. Help us all. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.